Welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Church podcast. We are a vineyard church located in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and we invite you to enjoy this message from God's Word. I received so many wonderful uh, testimonies this week. You guys are really getting it done out there. People send me emails and left notes on my desk and, and all of uh, things that are happening and sharing your faith and ministering to other people. Man, keep it up. And I can feel it in the auditorium when we're worshiping. You can sense that, can't you? That uh, there's like a release inside of us uh, of the spirit presence of God in our lives every day and it just kind of comes together when we gather this is what you feel this is what you sense is a celebration of what went on during the week and so uh, thank you for that also on Friday night uh, Christy was telling me that you know you guys and the team the outreach team fed almost 500 law enforcement officers Uh, yeah you served them you served them and uh, fed them and prayed for them when they wanted it. And uh, thank you. This thing has grown exponentially year after year after year. It's just getting bigger. Thank you for your participation and your support of this. And also, we, you know, the message today as we launch into Ruth is about commitment because we're going to see that in the first chapter. And uh, we, it's, persistence is a part of, part of commitment, right? And we have two of our was on staff here and are now our missionaries who have been so persistent in trying to get to Italy, Rick and Susan Harrell, right? And so for five months they have been trying and trying and praying and hitting one you know, closed door after another. Will we have some good news? Do you want to shout it, Rick? Out. We leave on Saturday of this coming week. They leave for Italy Saturday. There you go. Father, we bless Rick and Susan. We know they're flying standby now with all this going on. So we ask for favor on the flight. We ask that, Lord, indeed you open up the seats for them. They won't have to wait forever, but, Lord, they'll be able to get on, get a good seat, and get to the country you are calling them to. Bless them, protect them, fill them full of your Holy Spirit, Lord, and bring the gospel even more so to Italy because the heralds are there in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good stuff. Good stuff. Wow. Oh, man, I had such a list of things here. Okay, we're going to be in Ruth. If you've got your Bible or if you've got your app and you want to open it up to the book of Ruth, it's right after the book of Judges in the Old Testament. kind of follows through what's going on in Israel at the time. And uh, this, I've been wanting to get to this book for a long time because it, the main characters are women in, in this book. And uh, yes, and so, uh, you know, we want to get there. And uh, I want to read a, a few statistics and things to you that, when I was doing this research, uh, this was out of, from Scientific American uh, this past year, actually. It says, from a glance at the statistics, it's clear that millennials vaguely defined as those who are 18 to 34 years old this year are indeed commitment phobes compared to their parents and grandparents. But listen to this, parents and grandparents. There was another survey. <laughs> okay, this is from uh, a post by Mary Pritchard. And it, in a society where 50% of first marriages end in divorce and today's newest retirees changed jobs 11 times on average during their li- lifetime. And though I've been doing this pastoring thing for over 35 years now, if I looked at the first part, I counted 11 <laughs> jobs as I made my way there. 11 times on average during their lifetime, it's no wonder that today's young adults seem to be commitment phobic. Just look at their role models. It would appear that we can't seem to commit 
to anything these days. Uh, and we will see, we're going to see some examples in the book of Ruth today. And, you know, our part of discipleship, part of maturing as a people of power, and by power I mean the Holy Spirit in our statement, uh, is that we learn to take our faith commitment into a life commitment. That means that our trust in following Christ in our lives follows us right into life so that people that we are around and the people that we want to show Christ to can see that that commitment to Christ is also apparent in the way we do life, right? It should affect the way we do life. And so uh, this, is, and this affects our relationships. It affects, uh, you know, uh, it, in our marriages, and our businesses, all of, you know, this lack of commitment and, and being afraid to really step across the line to say, I'm going to stick this out, affects us in every single area of our lives. And in the book of Ruth, we have great examples of all kinds of lack of commitment and commitment. So we're going to start there. and We're going to read the whole first chapter. All right. It's not that long, but uh, but uh, this way you can go away on Memorial Sunday and say, I read the Bible today. I actually read a whole chapter today. So let's put it up on the screens. Let's read Ruth 1 and then I'll pray and we'll jump into this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. 
because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me, said Naomi. Return. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Father, bless the reading of your word this morning. Open it up to us. Uh, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence this morning. And thank you that you are here to teach us. And you promised you would come and teach us all things. And so we trust that you will do that today, that each of us here will take a portion, something from your living word with us out of these doors today. And it will be a blessing to us and change us. So come, Lord Jesus, help me with my weakness. Give me the gift of teaching for the next few minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is a time in Israel, as we see in the book of Judges, as it ends, that everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone had, you know, whatever they wanted to do, they did. If you talked to someone about your God, they would say, well, that's your God. That's not my God. Well, that's all right for you to do, but I don't want to do that. Or I can do that. Who are you to tell me I can't do this? Sound familiar? And uh, this was the situation. There was no ruling. There was nobody giving leadership in any way. Uh, We've got these characters that we have to unpack first. Elimelech, the husband. Uh, of Naomi. Elimelech's name means God is my king. What a great name, huh? God is my king, Elimelech. Uh, Living in Bethlehem, that's a well-known place, right? And Naomi's name means pleasant. Pleasant. A pleasant person. Uh, As you make your way on through it, we know that they left Israel, they left Judah, and they went to a place called Moab. Now, Moab was not a nice place to go. The Moabites were people that came from Lot's daughters who uh, had sex with the father and had, you know, sons. And so the Moabites came out of that situation. The Moabites uh, worshipped maybe three or four different gods. Chemosh was one of the main ones, Astar and some others, but they incorporated sexuality into their worship. They did uh, child sacrifices in Moab. It was just a very, very horrible place to go. And God had warned Israel not to, not to you know, be in contact with those people, to stay away from them. And uh, then we have these two sons. You know, they went to Israel, and uh, Elimelech, uh, sons, Elimelech and Naomi's sons, married two Moabite women. And uh, these two sons, and I think the author put this in, Malon and Kilion, just kind of post-story, post-history, because the names the writer gave these sons, Malon and Kilion, means sickly and wasted. <laughs> and I think it's probably the story is, is whoever wrote, we're not sure exactly who wrote this, but he's trying or she's trying to convey to us that these guys, these sons, were not what you call really, you know, stand up. Like they were sickly. Maybe they were working the fields there. There was a famine going on in Bethlehem. What does the name Bethlehem mean? House of bread. But there was no bread, evidently, in Bethlehem at this time. So Elimelech gets his family up and he goes to Moab. They marry Moabites and, uh, and they have, you know, have no children. Been there for over 10 years and then Elimelech dies. And now there's just the two sons, sickly and wasted. 
you know, right there with, uh, with Naomi. And then sickly and wasted, get sick and we're wasted. And, uh, you know, they're gone. And so, yeah, you've got uh, the two, the Moabite widows. And uh, you also have Naomi, who has no husband, and she's getting up in years, she, uh, enough that she can't have children anymore. And in this society, if you didn't have family, especially males, you were really, you're not getting, you're not going to be taken care of. And they had a thing called Leveret marriage, and uh, where, you know, the, the one that died, the mother of the daughters, or whatever, that died could have children, and the next one, the kin, not blood kin, but the next kin on that side could come and take them in and take responsibility for them. But there was no, there was no other family members left, just Naomi, that was it. So she's in a mess, and she's in a foreign land. And so that's where we join the story. And so we're going to look at first, if you flip your hand out, hand out over, there is a, a fill-in there. And the first thing is reacting to the challenge of commitment, because this is a situation where some people have made some really bad decisions, and, uh, and then some have made some good ones. But your first fill-in is this. Notice that Elimelech, right? My God is king. Elimelech runs from his commitment. As soon as it got tough in the house of bread, he leaves the house of bread to run to Moab, which is not where he should have gone. He didn't stick it out. He didn't trust my God is king. He thought the Moabite leadership is better than the one in Bethlehem. So I'm going to leave and go to where my God, who is king, told me not to ever go to to see if they will be more generous to me than the God of Bethlehem. So he, he betrays his own name when he does this. He picks up his wife, he picks up his sons, and they head out. And uh, my God is king. Obviously, God was not his king at that time. He wasn't leaning into it. And uh, how many times, let me ask you this question, how many times does the Bible tell us to move on? It's not that many. It's not that many times that God says, move on, move on, move on. Especially true in the New Testament. But usually God takes a group, moves them in, and says, get established. Even the history of Israel, if you watch them, he moves them to a place of strategic importance for what he wants to get done in the world. And he says, this is where you need to stay, right here. And of course, there are reasons for moving on. So don't think I'm not saying that that's not true, but... Like a Limelech, many times we just need any reason. Because that stretch of waiting and waiting to see if God is going to come through, if indeed he is my king, if he's going to bring provision, which he did, as we saw, we cut and we run. And that's what a Limelech did. He packed it up and he moved on. And sure enough, what happens? They marry Moabites in that land. You know, we get to the place where we think when life is really difficult that something's wrong. Have you ever been there? When things get really tough, we go, something's not right here. Something's not right with God. God's not making provision for me. This isn't the right person. This isn't the right job. This isn't the right church. This isn't the right friendship. This isn't, and we're ready to get up and leave. My son, uh, youngest son, when he was probably 14 years old, we're sitting out down at downwind sails surfing and, and I, I pointed down the beach and I said well, it looks like a sandbar down there it's breaking better and, and Aaron paddled over to me and he goes dad that's DBS I said what is that he said down the beach syndrome 
It, it looks better down there, but, you know, it's Myrtle Beach. It's not going to be that much better. <laughs> DBS, down the beach syndrome. But when things start getting tough, a lot of times DBS kicks in. Like, oh, I see a wave over there. It looks better. It looks better, you know, in between the sets because it's not coming right now. It's gone flat. And Elimelech, didn't, we don't read anything of him praying, of him asking, of we don't. He just packs it up and he goes to a place the opposite of what God was trying to do in him. A place that was not friendly to him. It was dangerous for his wife. And uh, so he packs up and he leaves. Again, sometimes we, we think my life is hard. Something has to change. Did you know Jesus? How many of you like to claim scriptures? You, like you read a scripture and you memorize it and you keep saying it over your life. Here's one for you. This is Jesus, John 16, 33. Okay, here it is. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have what? Trouble. trouble. I claim that, Lord, in this world I will have trouble. Yes, Lord, yes. But what? Take heart, I have overcome the world. You see, trouble is normal. Despite what the television tells you. Despite what advertisements tell you, trouble is normal in this world. Struggle is normal. It doesn't mean that something is terribly wrong every single time when things get uncomfortable in your life. It is life. And if God is indeed committed to us as we've committed our lives to him, but he has overcome the world. There's a stickiness in that relationship with God. That says that you can do more than you realize. You can stick this out because I've overcome this situation. So hang in there. Elimelech, though, doesn't give us a great example of of hanging in there. So before you abandon your commitments, you know, take a look around you. Take a look and see. Uh, So Elimelech ran from his commitment. Secondly, now look at Naomi. What does she do? He dies. The boys die. And have you ever heard such, uh, I mean, this is an amazing complaint to the Lord. And I just want to read some of this back because it's very prolific and very, I think, heartbreaking. Naomi said to her two daughters, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest. And she says, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons, no more sons, who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old even to get married, she says, to have another husband. Nobody's going to want me. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight, here's the sarcasm, right? Even if I had a husband tonight and, they, and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter. There's where she changes her name, Mara, which means bitterness, right? For it is more bitter for me than for you, like I'm the one hurting. Though they've lost their husbands too. I'm the one hurting more than you are. It's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. You ever felt like that? Like, God, what did I do? You know, if, if I'm your friend, what do you do to your enemies? I mean, have you ever felt like that? Like, God, what are you doing to me? 
And this was Naomi's position in life. She was there. So though Elimelech ran from his commitment, Naomi complains about her commitment. Like here I was, that's your second fill-in. Naomi complains about commitment. Here I am, Lord. I followed my husband. I went here. And look what you've done to me. Look what you've done. You've taken everything away from me. And you've left me in a situation where there's no hope. No hope at all. Now, I don't want to be hard on Naomi or difficult about how she dealt with things because the Bible, if you've read this, knows that in the Psalms and look at Jeremiah and there's so many other books and so many prophets and, uh, that poured their hearts out to God and say, God, why? Why am I going through this? Why are you letting this happen to me? And to complain actually is a lot better than to running from commitment. It's to pour your heart out to God. And before you run from your commitment, the question is, have you complained to God yet? Before you just get up and run, have you taken it to him and said, God, why is this happening? Why is this happening in my life? Before you make the decision to get up and leave where you are or to go to another place or to abandon some commitment that you have, have you said, God, what is going on here? What? And then get a journal out. If you want to be expressive, I'm telling you, get a journal out and start using every adjective superlative that you can find about how you feel and write it down and put it before God and say, here, God, this is me. You know, he already knows. You know how you think things, but you say, I'd never say that to God. (laughs) He can take it. He's a big God. He can take it. He can take everything Naomi was throwing at him right here. So complain. That's better than running off. Complain to God. Now, she complained to God. Now, their daughters were hearing it as well, which I'm sure was encouraging them. (laughs) You know, they don't have husbands either, and they're Moabites, and here they are. And uh, so, even when she gets back home, look, she gets home, and though it's been over 10 years, her friends recognize her. And they... This conveys, when we get down to uh, verse 19, it conveys that they're glad to see her. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Can this be pleasant? Can this be her? Don't call me pleasant, she told them. Call me bitter. I went away full. I've come back empty. You see this play, it's what they call a chiasm that in Scripture where it breaks down and it goes back. It's a beautiful poetic way of expressing feelings and express, expressing emotions. And, uh, and so uh, she complains and she says, the Lord has afflicted me. She lays it right at the feet of her creator. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Well, had he? Was it him? Was it him? We don't know that, do we? We don't know that. We don't, and neither does she. But at least she was honest with God. She didn't cut and run. She was honest with the Lord. Then, Ruth. Beautiful Ruth. This is your third fill-in, and that is Ruth models commitment. Ruth models commitment. Verse 14 after Naomi has said all of this, it says they wept aloud again. Imagine these, these daughter-in-laws are weeping. They love their mother-in-law. They're weeping. They don't want to separate. 
But Naomi lays out a case. She's like, look, you guys are Moabites. You're going to go back to Bethlehem. Nobody's going to want you. Right? We've got to go 30 miles, females. Now, Naomi was willing to walk back by herself 30 miles, an older lady. Imagine that in these times. And so Orpah is a reasonable person, and she says, better for you to go back to your people and your mothers. In other words, you have Moabite mothers, so they will take you in. Their family will take you in and care for you. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Hear that? That poetry in this. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me. Now here she brings the Lord into this commitment. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely. Even though Naomi has said, man, the Lord's dealing severely with me. Ruth says, deal with me severely if I don't keep my commitment. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. She just gave up. Said, okay, all right. And she chose commitment over convenience. Ruth chose commitment over comfort, over a predictable future. She says, no, I'm going to stay committed to this, this woman. She's lost her husband. I've lost my husband This is where God wants me. And you see the shift from the Moabite God to the God of Israel in the midst of this commitment as Ruth recognizes who God is as well. And when it says that the girls clung to uh, Naomi, that's the same word that's used in Genesis about the husband and wife clinging. In other words, it's like a glue. So you ever had relationships where you feel like there's glue in it? Like you, you may not even see them for some time and then suddenly you see them and you're like, it's like you never were away from that person a friend or someone and you're like there's just something very special about that bond there's a glue in it and so Ruth felt this bond and this glue in their relationship and she was not about to give up on it so we've got a great example of someone who cuts and runs when it gets difficult we've got a great example of arguing and pouring it out before the Lord and saying I don't get this God are you the one doing this to me and we have a great example of commitment in a woman who did not know the future but was committed to the relationship it did not look good in the future but yet she was committed to the relationship it did not they could have gotten killed on the road 30 miles is a long ways to walk back when they get to Bethlehem it's a different country it's a different culture altogether but she's committed to what she's committed to Naomi she's like you're not going anywhere without me beautiful example of commitment now how do we how do we become people of commitment and there are some fallacies I think that uh, maybe we presume about people who are so faithful and loyal and committed Um, you know I was thinking about Bob Bob was up here leading worship a while ago. Bob's been in this church for the whole 20 years. Uh, when we started, he came in, I think, the first or second Sunday, Bob and Sheila. Uh, there's others in here, Pam and Jim, and others that have been here with us who, through the ups and downs and my dumb decisions and everything else, you know, they've stuck it out and been there. And, and there are people of commitment, people who said, this is where I'm going to be. I'm going to stick it out. And your next fill-in is this. How do we stay committed? First, a committed person is realistic. Some people think that committed people just are like flippant with their commitment. Like, oh, they don't see the reality. 
of life. No, a committed person, they realize it. They know it's going to cost them. They know that they know that they don't know what the, this decision will cost them in the future. They don't know, but they're still committed. They're realistic to it. Naomi laid out uh, a pretty good case for not going, right? And yet Ruth goes, no, I'm going with you. Not knowing what was on the other side. Orpah went back, but Ruth stuck it out. And uh, committed people are not oblivious to the challenges and are not oblivious to the cost. I mean, here we are on Memorial Day of all times, you know, when we remember commitment. People who are not, they're not ignorant of the cost, but they're still committed. I mean, Jesus, think about this. Jesus, from the moment he was baptized right on, was he oblivious to the cost of what it was going to take from him in order to buy us back to our creator? Did he not, was he unrealistic? No, he lived in a very real place of knowing exactly what it was going to cost him when it came to it, and yet he persevered and he stayed committed to the call. So committed people, they're not living in some fantasy land of it's going to be roses and chocolates and great. That's why I'm going back to Bethlehem. And you know, it was all she could see was Naomi. I care about you, my mother-in-law. And you're not going back by yourself. You're not going back. It's those kind of people that make a difference in life. People who are realistic about the challenges and realistic about commitment and go, you know what? I'm in this thing for the long haul. I'm here. This is what God is doing, and this is what I'm going to give my life to. And they don't run from it, and they're very practical and pragmatic when it comes to the challenges. Jesus' own family, you know, thought he was nuts early on. I mean, they would sit in the back of the room, and his brothers would pick on him. Hey, guys, the big brother's crazy. You ever read this? It's in there. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it's... Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, they would. They'd look at him while he was preaching and teaching, and they'd go, he's nuts. I mean, that's pretty intimidating, is it not? And Jesus stayed the course. If you don't love me more than mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, children, houses, homes, commitment being laid down. And he stuck the course. Past the devil's temptations in the desert, right into the Garden of Gethsemane, weeping, bleeding, tears... And he stuck it out right to the cross for me and you. And he knew it was coming. Committed people are not unrealistic people. That's what makes it so special when you run into a committed person. Because they, they do see the lay of the land and they're still committed. Secondly, a committed person refuses to be intimidated. Refuses to be intimidated. Ruth, you know... She's just not having anything of it. And look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. That's pretty intimidating. Your sister you've had for a long time now is going back. She makes sense. She's looked at it and gone, okay, Naomi, you've got a point here. I'm going back. But the other sister, Ruth, is not going to be intimidated by that moment. Though others turn away, and who could blame? This is not to disparage at all, you know, the other sister at all. 
But Ruth goes, that's not my call. I'm called to be committed to you, and I'm going to stick it out. She was not intimidated by that. I want you to notice something else, too. Look at the end of Ruth. And uh, when they come into Bethlehem, and the women, when they walk in, and the other women in the town start seeing Naomi, and they start going, oh, it's Naomi. She's back, pleasant one. There is not one mention from Naomi's mouth about Ruth. This woman has given up everything to go with her mother-in-law, has walked the 30 miles, and is now coming into the town. And Naomi is like, don't call me pleasant, call me bitter, you know. And there's Ruth, who has been committed to her. That's kind of intimidating. It's like, you don't even appreciate my friendship. I'm going home, you know. <laughs> you know it's, it's, I mean, that's intimidating when someone doesn't appreciate your commitment. But Ruth wouldn't be intimidated. No, sir. She's committed to see it through. So committed people are not intimidated. The devil couldn't intimidate Jesus. Jesus' own family couldn't intimidate him. And uh, powerful people threatened to kill him and even did eventually. But he was committed. Your last villain is a committed person endures. A committed person endures. That is truly the quality that speaks to a person who is committed is when you see that they've, they've stuck it out, that stickiness in their life and whatever God has called them to be committed to. A committed person endures. Ruth says she will endure whatever comes, even death. She even makes the statement that death is not going to separate us. Well, it will, but she's like, this is how deep my commitment goes. And uh, boy, people with that type of commitment, that character of commitment, are in our culture now not as, we don't see as many of them, do we, as we used to at home. Life is hard. Jesus said it would be, and it would be difficult, and there would be challenges. But there are committed people who see it through. Jesus did it, he said before, the joy set before him. The joy set before him in the middle of the crucifixion, in the middle of being tortured and beaten, in the middle of being just totally disowned by his brothers and sisters, you know, he was still committed to it because he knew there was something on the other side of all of this. Our first chapter ends with these amazing words this morning. It says, now Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth, and keeps saying the Moabite, right? Calling her the Moabite. Her daughter-in-law arriving in Bethlehem. What's the last words here? At the barley harvest. The barley harvest was just beginning. The bread is back in Bethlehem. And Ruth and Naomi have shown up just at the right time. That's next week. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word on uh, examples of people, Lord, who are committed in what you have called them to. Jesus, you were so committed to us that you walked through the pain, the loneliness, uh, the suffering and all to to do what you were called to do. And, And today, that's the first step of commitment because there's no way to be committed like we're talking about outside of your strength, Lord. Outside of like tapping into your level of love and commitment and loyalty and faithfulness. And so, Today might be your day when you go, I'm going to commit to something today. And the first thing I'm going to do today is I'm going to commit to Jesus Christ.
He committed his life to me. He committed his whole entire being into seeing that I was reconciled to him. And I am going to reciprocate by surrendering to him this morning and saying, Thank you, Lord, for your commitment to me. And now I commit my life to you. Come and glue us together, Jesus, in such a way that my life will exemplify a commitment to who you are and what you have called me to. You could pray that right where you are because you know if Jesus is saying that to you. You know if he's wooing you. You know if he's calling you. But it's great to respond. It's good for us to, to say, that's me. And so if you would let me know, that's me, just lift your hand and say, that's me. This morning I commit my life. Just raise your hand up because I, I really want to know if that's happening in your life. Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, come. Those that raise their hand, I pray your presence would come in a very strong way right now so that they can experience your commitment. You said you would never leave us. You would never forsake us, God. You stick to us like glue. And your friendship is deeper and more faithful than the dearest brother we could even have in our lives. So make that real today, God. And Father, as we, your church, and as our guests are here today too, we want to be a committed people. We have today, all of us have lacked commitment or we've blown it or we've done like a limelech. We've packed up and ran maybe when we should have stuck around. We know you're a redeemer though, Lord. And we know that you give us today and there's enough mercies today for us. There's fresh grace awaiting us right now. So this day is the only day of commitment we get. <laughs> This begins our history right now. And so those of us who feel that maybe we've walked off of some things that we shouldn't have, your forgiveness is here. And your strength is here too, Lord, to live a life of commitment from this point on. So come, Lord. Cleanse and forgive and renew and bring the joy of living a committed life to you and to whatever we're called and whomever we're called to, Lord, to be seen in this world as we've seen in Jesus' life. And Lord, let's stand, guys. No, we used to tell church planters when, we sent, uh, when they went to a city or a town to plant a church, we said the first thing you do when you get to that town is buy a funeral plot. <laughs> we're like, you need to know that you're committed to that place. Go in, buy, buy a plot, and say, that's where I'm going to die. I'm going there. Now, God can change things. God can change things. I know that. But that commitment up front is, that's where I'll die. I'm coming to this town. I'm going to give my life to it. They'll bury me here. And, uh, you know, that's exactly what Jesus did, except he just got up out of the grave to show you who he was. Amen. You know, he's like, yeah, there you go. And so what a joyful thing to serve a God of commitment who forgives us and gives us his own sense of forgiveness and the power to be able to live a committed life. Lead us in a refrain here, Mr. Damian, and uh, we'll get out of here. Thanks for listening to the Seacoast Vineyard Podcast. You can learn more about us and access a video archive of our messages by visiting seacoastvineyard.com. If you feel led to support us financially through a one-time or recurring gift, please click on the Give tab at our website or download the PushPay app on your smartphone and search for Seacoast Vineyard Church. Thank you.